Okay, everybody, let's continue on together. Really nice to see you all. Might be back in the auditorium. If you are new here, let me add my welcome to you. My name is Philip. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be teaching from the Bible in a moment, as we do every week. But um, wasn't that encouraging to hear about prayer and fasting, people's encounters with God, uh, what they're learning, what they're discovering, what God's doing in our lives? It's really, really exciting. I'm excited more broadly, as it were, about the direction of, the, of us as a church, as a community this year. I feel like God's really solidifying sense of vision and direction in, in me and other leaders in the church. And I'm, I'm pleased to tell you, that I think we can begin to bring a bit more clarity, really, about who we are as a church, the direction we're heading, something of the vision we feel God's calling us to. We're going to work towards doing that um, later in the year, growing leadership teams and so on. So lots of news to come. I will keep you posted as to how we move into the year. But God's been doing some really, really good things, as you've already seen uh, this morning, but also in in the whole life, the corporate life, the directional life, as it were, of us as a church. So that is exciting. And actually encouraging is the kind of the word of this morning. I'm going to preach all about encouragement. Before I do that, uh, one of the things we'd love to do at King's Church, if you are new, is to always celebrate good news. And we have a little moment scheduled in the year where we kind of celebrate good news, engagements and weddings and babies and so forth. And I wanted to mention just today one more baby that's been added to, to kind of the life here at the church. Uh, I hope that I might be embarrassing them too much, but Andy and Joe Chevalier are amongst us here. They're talking whilst I'm talking. You see that? <laughs> Do you see that? Um, but Andy, Andy and Joe are friends of the church very much. Andy worked for the church for a while and did a brilliant job. Um, they've been living more locally of late, and so have been amongst us the last few months, uh, Andy and Joe and Barney. And in that time, they've had a baby, little Toby, who I think we can even see. So let's congratulate them. <laughs> Wonderful news. And um, this is also, I think, their final Sunday with us before they move back to their, to their renovated home. So we don't get to see so much of them anymore, but thank you for being amongst us. And actually, I'm going to embarrass Andy first of all, because, uh, again even, because when it comes to encouragement, Andy is one of the most encouraging people that I know. He has got a real uh, gift for encouragement. He has the ability to find the words to say, even if they're not um, like overly soft words, but still make you feel kind of 10 feet tall rather than six inches tall. He has that ability to bring words that build up, that encourage specific feedback often that leaves you feeling like 10 feet tall, frankly. It's a real gift that he has. And encouragement has that kind of power, doesn't it? It's a potent force, encouragement. Just to kind of prove that to ourselves, could you just turn to the person next to you, just a little bit of uh, chat time, I know you've already had some, but just tell the person next to you two things. Who is the most encouraging person person that you know, and specifically, what is the, like, why are they so encouraging? Why is their encouragement so powerful, if you want to use that word, or helpful? Who's the most encouraging person you know, and what is it about their encouragement that has a particular kind of potency or helpfulness or power? Can you do that? Like 90 seconds, and then we'll hear some thoughts.
Okay. I just, I just would love to hear a few thoughts. If you're like brave enough, don't have to say who the person is, because we might not know them, and it might be private or something. Um, I'm guessing if you're married and the person who's the most encouraging was not your spouse, that may have been an awkward moment. I don't know. So uh, forgive me if I've just created marital strife for the rest of the week. Fortunately, my wife was not here, so I got away scot-free. But don't tell me who the most encouraging person is. But can you tell, give me some reasons as to why that person's encouragement is so potent or powerful. Can we just have some like, shout-outs? Encourage makes you believe in yourself. Thank you very much, Zoe. Of yourself? Yeah. Okay. It provides self-understanding, makes you believe in yourself. Go on, Mo. It makes the, what, you trust them more. Yeah. Anne? Makes you believe you can do it. It's a potent, powerful thing. What else is potent about encouragement? Like, amazing. And so encouragement tells you that you're loved. Wow. So encouragement is a potent thing. It's non-judgmental. Interesting. Thank you, Al. Everyone's pointing at you. It's better be good, eh? <laughs> Interesting. So the source of the encouragement is, is a big factor. Interesting, thank you. Catherine. Pardon? So encouragement can bring, can bring a sense of prophecy. In other words, encouragement can bring a sense of direction. It can actually carry something of God's directional heart, which is incredibly powerful and potent. So I think we, yeah, last one, Anna. It just shows that somebody in you when maybe no one else does. Interesting. And that's a powerful thing, isn't it? If you're sensing nobody believes in me, that's not a great place to be. But if encouragement comes and, you're, and you've, you realize someone does believe in you and you've got purpose and direction, that's an incredibly powerful thing. So we can agree on anything so far. We can agree that encouragement is a potent, powerful force. And I want to talk about it this morning. And I want to open up the series that we started and paused, or we started last term and paused before Christmas. We're in 1 Samuel 23. Because we're in a series called Sketches. So if you're brand new to us as a church, maybe you're brand new to the Bible, let me just explain where we are. We're in a series called, called Sketches, 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And, the, seri- and the, uh, the book of 1 Samuel tells the story of mainly a guy called David. We're in about 1000 BC. And David went from being an like, anonymous shepherd boy suddenly to being chosen as the future king of Israel. There was a current king called Saul. He started off really promisingly. He'd lost his way, was deteriorating tragically. God chooses a young man called David, about 17, to be the next king. And then over the next 17 year, sorry, 13 years or so, this young man called David goes through effectively a kind of preparatory training ground to prepare to become king. That's the kind of narrative, if you like. David preparing to become king, Saul is the king. Saul is pretty unimpressed, he's gonna lose his crown, and he becomes increasingly vengeful and hateful towards David and tries to kill him repeatedly. In amongst all of that, Saul's son, Jonathan's a remarkable young man because although he is, in theory, scheduled to become king, Actually, he gets behind what God's doing through David and instead kind of endorses David's future kingship, even though it's going to cost him his crown. That's the kind of narrative. Now, we've also said, and this is where the series is called Sketches, that behind the narrative, as is always the case in the Old Testament, if we look hard enough, like you look into a picture or a sketch, you can see other figures like behind. And we've said the nature of this sketch series in one sound is if you look hard enough at what's happening, David, Jonathan, Saul, others, you can see something of yourself. You can see a bit of what you're currently like, and you can also see a bit of the kind of person you probably would like to become. And 
the sketch series tells us that as we look behind the narrative, we also see something of what Jesus is like. Because the whole of the Old Testament, every type of literature in there, is always hinting at and pointing towards Jesus. Andrew was just bringing to us another passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah, which is predicting, as he said, 700 years beforehand, what this Jesus was going to be like. That's more explicit. There are implicit examples by the hundred of where actually what's going on is pointing us towards the need for Jesus. And as we look at David and Jonathan, we often see a little bit of what Jesus is going to be like. That's the kind of nature of the series that we're in. And we just landed in this moment now, in 1 Samuel 23, where David's on the run, as you would be if Saul's trying to kill you and he's the king. And David, although he's an outstanding young man, has started to show some fallibility. He's not perfect. And in the scene that we're in, he's, out, he's in hiding, as you would do. He's an outlaw. And he hears news. Um, there's another Israeli town called Kila, which is under threat. And having now gathered about kind of 400 men to himself, a bit of a, a band of merry men, as it were, he asks God, shall I go and rescue this town of Kila from the enemy Philistines? God says, yes. He goes and does so. A hero once again, Kila is rescued. But Saul hears that David is in Kila. Now he knows where he is. So Saul heads for Kila to try and kill David as quick as he can. To David's horror, Kila wants to hand him over. And so David flees in fear of his life. So David gave himself to this town, he saved them, and they show him their gratitude by basically trying to hand him over to the king to be killed. So he's on the run, his life's under threat, who can he trust? He's not in a good place. And then we pick up the story here in verse 15 of chapter 23. Watch out for the encouragement. It says this, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was now in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh in Israel. And Jonathan, remember that Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh and Jonathan went home. And the rest of the chapter continues. Believe it or not, the people of Ziph, just like the people of Keilah, they try and carry favor with Saul too and try and hand David over to them, try and hand David over to him. David flees again, and a kind of like a, a Lord of the Rings scene ensues as Saul's men chase David's men on either side of the mountain. It looks like it's all going to come to a horrible, bloody end. In the last minute, Saul hears news that the Philistines have attacked again, so he has to leave, goes back. David is free and safe once again. You can read the passage for yourself if you want to see whether I've to- what I've told you is true to the word, but it is. Now, what I want to do is hone in on Jonathan's encouragement of David's because it's a very, very potent force. But I want to put it to you that Jonathan's encouragement of David carries an even more potent, powerful force than some of the examples we heard of before. Did you notice Jonathan's encouragement of David effectively stopped him giving up? Don't fear. Must have been an element of giving up. Jonathan's encouragement of David reminds him that his destiny will be fulfilled. God is going to make him king. It fortifies him to keep going. Because after the encouragement, he takes another hit. His life's in threat again. He's betrayed again. So that encouragement allows him to keep going. And Jonathan's encouragement affirms his total commitment to David. They make a covenant like brothers. Jonathan pledges, I'm with you. I believe in you, uh, to quote what we heard earlier on. 
Encouragement is very, very powerful. But I want to put it to you that Jonathan's encouragement of David is particularly potent for three reasons. One, it's intentional. Two, it's selfless. And three, it's Godward. It's intentional, it's selfless, and focused. And as we look into this, you're going to see, I think, something of yourself, perhaps the kind of person you'd like to be. You're also going to see something of Jesus. And you're going to see that he's the, reason, he's the person that can make us the kind of people that we want to be. So number one, this encouragement is intentional. Did you notice that? Verse 15. Um, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Did you notice? Jonathan didn't just end up at Horesh and say, Ah, oh, David, fancy meeting you here. Now, I'm not belittling accidental, spontaneous meetings and then the encouragement that comes. But what we learn here is that Jonathan is being intentional with his encouragement. He rises, he gets up, he goes to see David. He knows his friend is in serious danger. He knows he must be fearing for his life. He knows he must probably be discouraged, possibly fearful, doubting of God's goodness and faithfulness maybe. So he makes a decision to get up and go and encourage him, go and strengthen him. It is intentional encouragement. Uh, this week I was chatting to Abby Riley, who's a member of this church, and we're chatting about something else, and at the end of the conversation, she said to me, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say to you. I just want to encourage you that, and she told me something encouraging. That's not the point. The point is, she said, I, just, she said, I want to tell you something else. My point is, she had planned to encourage me, and I checked it with her this morning. <laughs> it was intentional, and it was specific, and it left me feeling 10 feet tall. That's what encouragement can do, especially when it's intentional. So imagine for a moment if all of us were to leave this morning making a little plan to be intentionally encouraging. That would be, what, 100 people this week who would receive something that I received this week, who'd receive something that David received, who'd receive maybe the examples that you talked about at the beginning. Intentional encouragement is really powerful and potent. Who would benefit from it in your life this week? Now, when it comes to Jonathan, as I say, we don't just see the kind of person that we'd like to be, an intentional encourager and powerful as such. We always see something of what Jesus is like. Jonathan is a wonderful, incredibly gifted, admirable young man, but he's not perfect. But he does point us towards the perfect, intentional encourager. If you fast forward a thousand years, this is in 1000 BC, fast forward 1000 years. The gospels tell us a very famous account of something that Jesus went through. They tell us of how Jesus and one of his best friends, Peter, had a conversation uh, hours before his death effectively, in which Jesus predicts that Peter is gonna betray him, deny that he even knows him. Many of you know the story. And Peter says, no chance, I would never do that. I'd never betray you, Jesus, I love you. In fact, even if I have to give my life, I would never betray you. And Jesus says, you will, before the Alarm clock effectively goes off tomorrow. You will deny me. And sure enough, Jesus is on trial in the temple court. Early hours of the morning. All the disciples have fled. They've all left him. Peter and probably John have kind of skulked back in. Peter's there probably uh, observing the trial taking place. And a, probably a teenage servant girl says to him, don't you know, don't you know Jesus? Peter's no. <laughs> Fear gets him, just like it got David. Second question, don't you know Jesus? No. 
Third question, you do know Jesus, don't you? You're one of his friends. No, I don't. He even swears at this teenage girl, the Bible seems to tell us. Total denial that he even knows Jesus. Now fast forward again, just a few more days after Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter is uh, in a boat fishing with some friends. He sees Jesus on the beach. He dives into the water, swims to the beach to, to see Jesus. He knows there's an elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is his horrendous betrayal of Jesus. And there's Jesus on the beach, not by accident, cooking a fish breakfast, and they talk. And Jesus is not there to write him off. He's not, he doesn't do what I'd be tempted to do and say, Peter, I, I can't believe you did that. Do you know what it was like to hear you deny you even knew me in my worst? Jesus encourages him. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing the passage, but he effectively says things like, Peter, I've not written you off. I know that you love me. I know you love me. I love you. And my plans for you are even more than just you continuing to know and love me. I actually want you to make me known. I haven't written you off. I want you actually to be part of the, the foundation upon which the church is built. Jesus is so encouraging. And he's intentional about it. He waited on the beach, cooked a breakfast, drew Peter into this moment to provide the most powerful intentional encouragement. If you want to be an intentional encourager this week, don't just try and be like Peter. Sorry, try and be like Jonathan. Receive the intentional encouragement of Jesus. That's what he does this morning. When we get it wrong, he draws us to himself. He forgives. He heals. And he doesn't just say, right, get on with just knowing me, being faithful to me. He says, actually, I want, I want you to make me known. I haven't written you off. Anybody here this morning? Nobody is written off from making Jesus known. Receive his intentional encouragement this morning. Number two, I'm probably going to overrun a bit this morning, but we'll work out a way of, of being flexible around that. Number two, Jonathan's powerful encouragement is selfless. So rewind again a thousand years, back to a thousand BC, Jonathan and David, one Samuel. Jonathan's encouragement is very selfless. It is entirely directed at David. And you might say, well, of course, encouragement's always directed at somebody else. That's the nature of it. Is it? Often our encouragement can be and might even be entirely supposed to be mutually beneficial. Now, I'm not criticizing that. If you're a, a boss who encourages your employees, if you're a spouse who encourages your spouse, a parent who encourages your children, a friend who encourages your friends, that is a mutually beneficial. You're going to have happier, more productive employees, spouses, friends, and children. So that's not wrong. But Jonathan's encouragement is especially selfless. It's not beneficial in his way. What do I mean? Well, think about Prince William. Random segue. But what has Prince William grown up with knowing since he was old enough to know stuff? What's he been told over and over again, either directly or indirectly by inference? You're going to be king one day. You're going to be king one day. Admittedly, your grandmother appears to be immortal, but... <laughs> One day, she will pass away, and the nation will mourn, and so forth, and so forth. And One day, you will be king. That's what he's grown up with, hasn't he? Now, Jonathan was the same. He grew up knowing he was to be king. His father Saul was a legitimate king. God had chosen him, anointed him. Yes, Saul had gone off the rails, but he was a legitimate king, and Jonathan could legitimately expect to be the next king because he was the oldest son. But... 
Jonathan has, for, for various reasons, got behind David. See, I'm only speculating, but Jonathan could have had a moment. He could have had a moment. Hang on a minute. All I have to do is just be discouraging here. I could derail David's plans. This guy clearly is just teetering, fearful, scared, not trusting in God maybe. Jonathan's discouragement, and I'm only speculating, but I think it's reasonable, could have derailed David's plans. And who would have benefited? Well, Jonathan. He's the rightful king after all. His, his, his encouragement is selfless. And it strikes me that to be a selfless encourager, you need to be a very deeply secure person. Jonathan must have been a very secure person. He must have found a way not to be defined by his position. Because if he was defined by his position as future king or future heir to the throne, when you lose the throne, that's a crushing experience. Your identity's gone. So he must have found a way to be more secure than his circumstances. He found a way to clearly to be so secure that it was who he was in God that was more important than any circumstances that he may or may not have had. People who are secure make the best encouragers, don't they? Because they're not only content for you to do okay or to recover, they want you to flourish. In fact, a secure person will encourage you so well that you go past them, that you supersede them, that you do things that they could never do. Jonathan wants David to go past him, to be the king that he couldn't be because he's found a security in God. His passion clearly is for God to be glorified, for the kingdom to grow, for God's power and love and truth to be known. And notice, secure encouragers can also say tough words. Jonathan's words aren't all kind of just gentle and lovey-dovey. He says, do not fear. Man to man, David, get your lip off the floor. Instead of a housemate at university, he would always say that. Any kind of grumpiness in our house, he'd get your lip off the floor. Now, because it was a, as a house, we were a bunch of mates, and we knew each other, loved each other. You could say most things to each other, and we did. Jonathan says, oh, thank you. That's good. That wasn't even my best joke. Jonathan it must be a secure person. He must be a deeply secure person, because he can say hard words. Don't fear. Don't give in. doesn't just say, come on, David, believe in yourself more. Hey, don't fear. Trust God. This is what he said. So you can say tough encouragement as well. And what I also find incredibly amazing about Jonathan's encouragement and its selflessness is, and there's a kind of a tragic overtone to this in some ways, Jonathan doesn't get to see the results of his intentional selfless encouragement. He thinks he's going to. Remember, he points us towards Jesus, who is perfect, but Jonathan's not. Jonathan says something on the lines of, I can't see here, but Jonathan says, I'm, you're, you're going to be king and I shall be next to you. Verse 17. Friends, this, this is the last time David and Jonathan ever see each other. Jonathan's killed on the battlefield before they ever see each other again. He never gets to see what he's encouraging to take place. Never gets to see it. He's, he's actually more selfless in his encouragement than he knows. But the results of his encouragement are world-changing. David is strengthened. He continues. He does become king. Israel has the greatest king he's ever had humanly speaking, but far more than that, Jonathan has no idea that God's ultimate plan is for David to be the source or the original or the first version of the ultimate true and better king. A thousand years later, from the line of David, who did become king, the perfect Jonathan, the perfect David, the perfect king comes, Jesus Christ. 
In part, yes, because of God's sovereign plans, but in part because of Jonathan's intentional, selfless encouragement. That is a potent thing, isn't it? Now, remember, Jonathan keeps pointing us towards Jesus, the perfect encourager. Jesus is not just intentional, he is a selfless encourager. Go back again to my scene on the beach. 30 AD, as it were. Peter, Jesus, having this extraordinary conversation over some lovely smoked fish on the beach. I guess it was smoked, barbecued, something. Remember what took place between them a few days before. Jesus was in his hour of need. He's already been, he's already been beaten, assaulted, falsely accused, probably spat at. Commentators think that actually Jesus probably overheard what Peter was saying because they're in the same inner court. So can you imagine that? Jesus in his hour of need and you overhear your best friend saying, I don't even know him. Your best friend who promised that nothing, even death, wouldn't stop him pledging his allegiance to you and you overhear him saying, no, I don't even know him. In fact, beep, beep. <laughs> what must that have been like for Jesus? What must that have been like to be so betrayed, let down, And yet on that beach scene, over that fish breakfast, over that intentional encouragement, Jesus resists any temptation he may have had to say, Peter, do you know what you did to me? Do you know how I felt? How exposed I felt? How lonely I felt? How dare you even be here? You're no friend of mine. And the Bible doesn't tell us Jesus felt like that, but it does tell us Jesus experienced every temptation that we can experience, and yet he was without sin. So Jesus experienced the temptation ergo, to be discouraging, at very least. And he never, ever gave into it. Cost him. It cost him. And instead of being discouraging, Jesus is encouraging. He forgives, he restores. He says to Peter, you're gonna know me in a ways that you didn't know me when I was walking the earth. You're gonna know me in incredible ways. And, and he says this to every Christian, only will you know me and grow deeper in knowing me. You're going to be somebody who makes me known. Imagine what Peter must have, what? I was hoping we could just call it quits. Just like carry on being on reasonable terms. I was hoping maybe my eternal, the heaven stuff would be still secure. She said, no, 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 no. I want you to be one of the principal foundations upon which the church is built and by which billions of people will encounter me, know me for themselves, and also begin to make me known. And he says, it's to you this morning. If you're a Christian, which just means you said, Jesus, I believe that you lived the perfect life that I couldn't do. You did experience all that Andrew just told us in Isaiah, which predicted 700 years before, for me. Which you could say like this, Jesus Christ, the gospel is this, Jesus Christ, by dying, absorbed all of the force of discouragement, all the shame that comes from being discouraged, not believed in, downtrodden, chopped off at the knees, made to feel six inches tall, all of that that you have both experienced and probably on occasion has delivered to others. All of that, all the pain of discouragement has ever happened, Jesus absorbed all of that into himself and was crushed by it as that Isaiah prophecy predicted he would be 700 years before. And then he came out the other side, through the resurrection, into life, and says, I've defeated discouragement, all that it's done to you and through you, and instead receive life, abundant life, now and forever. 
And Jesus does to all of us what he does to Peter. He recommissions us afresh to make him known. And finally, not only is Jonathan's and Jesus' encouragement, not only is Jonathan's encouragement intentional and selfless, it's also God-focused. Did you notice? Jonathan comes and strengthens David's hand in God. But are you okay with the timeline? We're going back and forwards a thousand years. I know we were just in 30 AD with beaches and resurrections. We're now back in 1000 BC. Jonathan goes intentionally to see David, selflessly encourages strengthens him in God. Now, I am not belittling at all the power of encouragement that says, I believe in you. We've heard how powerful that is. I'm not belittling the power of encouragement that says, I'm going to come with you. You can do it. I'm going to be with you. That's so powerful. But the reason why Jonathan's and potentially your encouragement can be even more potent than that is rather than saying, I believe in you or I'm going to come with you, Jonathan's encouragement says, not, not you can do it or I can do it, but God will do it. That's the difference. See, Christian encouragement is not depending on what you or I can do, as potentially powerful as that is. Jonathan doesn't say to David, or at least we're not, he doesn't say to David, David, you're an amazing leader. You, you believe in yourself more. Like those Psalms that you've written, right, just tug at the heartstrings. Huh? He doesn't say, you killed Goliath, you're such a good warrior. Doesn't say, believe in yourself more. He says, there's a God who will do this. You told me, David, and we can, I think, assume this must have happened. There must have been a conversation where David said, man, I was just out in the fields as being a shepherd one day, looking after my sheep, and suddenly I was beckoned back to the house. All my brothers lined up. There's this prophet guy that everyone knows in Israel, and he told me that God had said I was going to be the next king. But Jonathan reminded him, David, you told me that. God has said you will be king. So the encouragement ultimately doesn't rely on, on David's ability to try hard or do better and doesn't even rely upon Jonathan's commitment, though it's amazing to David. It relies upon the promises of God. Christian encouragement carries an additional potency if it is God-focused. And actually, it takes the pressure off because as wonderful as it is when someone says, I believe in you, whose responsibility, therefore, is it to flourish? Still yours. But when someone says, when someone who's come to know God more and more says, hang on a minute. The Bible says, Romans 8:28, that God is capable and committed to working everything that happens to you for good. So you could be going through the worst things, worst things. And human encounters say it's gonna be okay. Keep going. I'm with you. God would, Jonathan-like encouragement says, we have a God who has proved himself to be God by rising from death to life. If you're new to Christianity, that's a big question for you. That's okay, it is a big question. Follow the Hinge podcast, really helpful in looking at the evidence of resurrection. But Christianity is founded upon it being a reality, a real event. And Christian says, because Jesus proved himself to be God and did rise from the dead, we can trust what he says. Jesus believed the Bible, and the Bible tells us that there's a God who is capable of working even the worst of things for good in your life. Not neutralizing it, but somehow working it for good, bringing character change, sanctification, glory to him. That kind of encouragement carries a different potency. Now, of course, to be able to encourage someone in God, you need to know God. 
In other words, to make God known to people, you need to know who you're making known. Isn't that logical? Now, before uh, Christmas, we started a, a small series about Advent called The Promise. And at the beginning of that, I went through some of the promises of God. And we talked about standing upon them. You see, if you're going to encourage somebody in a Godward direction, you can say, oh yeah, it says in Hebrews 13.5, God says that he will never leave you or forsake you. I might. I might be like Jonathan and promise that I'm going to be with you when you become king, and actually I'm not. But God says he will never leave you or forsake you. If you know God, you can say, in, in, in Ephesians 2.10, it says that he has created good works in you to, for you to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God won't let you be tried or tempted beyond what you can endure. You say, I know it feels like you're being tempted beyond what you can endure. I know it's so hard. But God says he will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure. That's a different type of encouragement than believe in yourself. Now at this point you're thinking, hang on a minute, I don't know my Bible very well. I don't know all these promises. That's all right, that's part of the adventure of exploring the gospel over and over again, exploring scripture, getting to know God, who he is, what he says about himself. Join a life group, all these promises will be in the life group notes this week to help you know him and make him known to others. So the gospel could be said to be this. One way of describing the gospel when you, when you explore it afresh this morning is this. Jesus Christ is the perfect encourager. And he took all of the effects of discouragement that you have received and that you've delivered, and we all have, he took all of that upon himself, all of the shame that goes with it, all of the potential that was wrecked, all of the pain that comes from it, and he allowed himself The Bible says, joyfully he allowed himself, such as his love for you, he allowed himself to be crushed by the weight and the pain and the fracture of discouragement. And he came out the other side from death to life and said, simply through faith, you become now united to me, the perfect encourager. So go, live an abundant life. Bring incredible, intentional, selfless, God-focused encouragement. See my kingdom come through your encouragement. See people know me through your God-focused encouragement. That's what's been exciting to me this week, to think, do you know what? This is a really encouraging church. I gave one example of what I've experienced this week from Abby. I've experienced so much encouragement from this church. I really find it an encouraging place to be a member and to be a pastor and to preach. Thank you so much for all of your encouragement. I get lots of it. But there's way more to explore. There's there's an intentional, selfless, God-focused encouragement amongst ourselves and amongst the Kingston world that Caroline talked about that we've been called to reach and pray for that God wants to use us to do. In simple terms, he wants you this morning to know his encouragement more, like Peter did, and receive its fortifying, encouraging, forgiving effects in order that you might make him known. Jamie, could you um, come and help us to respond? We are overrunning. We talked to the leaders yesterday about being more flexible with running orders and timings and things, and sure enough, God was like, okay. Um, so there are messages going out to, to Crash and to, and to King's Kids to help them be flexible with us. But if you are 
um, you've got tiny little ones, it might be good to go and check in on the on crash because they're looking after your kids. And King's kids, three to 11s, they can hold on till quarter past 12, but parents just be aware of that. But I would love us to, to respond. The question is how? Let's stand, first of all. So here's how we're gonna respond. We're going to sing in a moment. Three things. Just raise your hand, and I'll ask you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand if you want to receive what Peter received this morning. If you want to receive that fresh encouragement from Jesus, which might be through forgiveness. It might be through being drawn near to him again, like we heard about. It might be being through freshly commissioned to go and make him known. That voice of God saying over you, I haven't given up on you. I've not written you off. Just in a moment, if that's you, you want to receive the encouragement of God, I'm going to pray for you and just raise your hand. Second person. If you want to be an intentional, selfless, God-focused encourager who brings about all of the power that that carries, raise your hand as well. I'd love to pray for you. And then thirdly, if you're somebody who's been exploring faith for a little while, we love the fact that you're with us. If you've come to a point where you say, you know what, I don't know everything. I've got some big questions. But I am convinced now that that prophecy that guy Andrew Brown talked about before, that did come true. That God did send his son 700 years later who was willing to go through all the effects and the pain and the agony of sin and take it upon himself in order that I might be forgiven like Peter and restored and made whole like Peter and live a life for him like Peter that's where you're at, that's called just becoming a Christian. If that is where you're at, I'd love to pray for you as well. So why don't you raise your hand along with those that are also raising their hands and I can pray for you too.